Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is for the June 23, 2019 RCL, and it's entitled Legion. He haunts the places of the dead. At night, the townspeople hear him shrieking among the tombs. Whenever they can catch him, they wrap his wrists and ankles in chains and haul his naked body, securely shackled, back to town. But there's no containing the crazy. He escapes every time. Trailing broken chains behind him, he wanders the wilds, tearing at his skin until he bleeds, trading perhaps one kind of pain for another. If he has a name, no one knows it. If he has a history, no one remembers it. If he has anything at all worth saving within his living, rotting, stinking corpse, no one sees it, because no one looks, until Jesus does. The story of the Gerasene demoniac is a tough one for us 21st century Christians to enter into, because it's full of details we find bizarre. Chatty demons, suicidal swine, instantaneous healing. Isn't this the stuff of black comedy or horror? How is an ancient exorcism story good news for us? I know that much ink has been spilt in recent decades trying to address what contemporary Christians find anachronistic and troubling about this story. Was the man really possessed by demons or just mentally ill? Isn't there a danger involved in conflating acute psychological suffering with evil? If the demons were real, why did Jesus negotiate with them? Why did he even show them mercy? And what about those poor pigs? Why did they have to die to secure the demoniac's healing? Didn't Jesus care about them or about the economic welfare of the pig-herding townspeople who watched in horror as their livelihood disappeared off a cliff? These are valuable questions, and I don't mean to dismiss them. But I worry that focusing on the stranger aspects of the story will prevent us from seeing how it can still be our story, a story of our here and now. So indulge me, please, as I sidestep the tough stuff and share why I'm haunted in good and necessary ways by the healing of the Gerasene demoniac. Why his encounter with Jesus makes me gasp and squirm, smile and cry, linger and recoil, repent and return. First, I think the story is our story because it begins precisely where we ourselves need to begin, and that is with a question. What is your name, Jesus asks, when he first encounters the possessed man by the lake? Remember, the man approaches Jesus not to ask for help, but to push Jesus away, maybe even to scare Jesus away. In all likelihood, his approach is violent and feral. But Jesus asks for a name anyway, and in doing so, begins to recall the man to himself to his humanity, to his beginnings, to his unique and precious identity as a child beloved of God. What is your name? Has there ever been a more loving, searching question? What would happen if you allowed Jesus to ask it of you? What would happen if you asked it of others? Who are you? Who are you really? Beneath the labels and the diagnoses, the pretense and the piety, the fear and the trauma, who are you when no one in this world is looking? What name do you yearn to be called in the lonely stretches of the night? Who were you before you lost yourself, before something vital in you died? Do you even remember? Jesus begins where we must begin, with an honest questioning and naming of ourselves, allowing him to ask the tender and intolerable question, What is your name? Second, I believe the story is our story because it tells us the unflinching truth about our condition. Legion, the man says in response to Jesus' question, my name is Legion, a multitude, 
a vast host, an incalculable swarm. Why? Because, Luke's Gospel tells us, many demons torment him. In other words, the sources of his brokenness are myriad. The assault on his mind, soul, and body is multi-pronged. It comes from many sources braided together. Perhaps it doesn't matter how we choose to explain these demons. Regardless of what language we use, biblical, theological, medical, sociological, what we know for sure is that the man's condition strips him of agency, sanity, dignity, and community. It keeps him in isolation. It renders him anonymous. It encourages him to mutilate his own body. It deadens his soul and divides his mind. In short, it deprives him of self-control and propels him towards self-destruction. Does any of this sound familiar? The truth is, what ails us as human beings is legion. The evil that haunts us has many faces, many names. We are all, every one of us, vulnerable to forces that seek to take us over, to bind our mouths, to take away our true names, and to separate us from God and from each other. Some of us suffer from depression or anxiety. Some of us are addicted to sex, alcohol, wealth, or thinness. Some of us are slaves to the internet, or prone to bitterness, or caught up in cycles of dishonesty, or in lust with our own rightness. Some of us can't shake traumatic memories. Some of us are imprisoned within systems of injustice that stretch back so many centuries we can't imagine liberation. Some of us have illnesses that crisscross the boundaries of medicine and culture, nature and nurture. Some of us know exactly what St. Paul is talking about when he says, What I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. If we expand the definition of possession to include everything that conspires to keep us dead when God wants us alive, then the story of the Gerasene demoniac is not an ancient oddity. It is the air we breathe, the zeitgeist we inhabit. It is a pandemic of our time. That's the bad news, but it's not where the story ends. The third reason I consider the story our story is because it tells us exactly where salvation lies, and it does so without hesitation or apology. When the demoniac sees Jesus, he falls down before him. When the townspeople come running to see what's going on, they find the man sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Salvation, in other words, lies at the feet of Jesus. It lies in surrendering to the one who alone has the power to cast out the horrors that torment us. This is not because Jesus is an arrogant megalomaniac. It's because evil in all of its incarnations finds him terrifying. It's because there is no death-dealing power in this universe that can withstand the saving, healing, resurrecting power of Jesus. It's because even the most destructive demons we can conjure up beg for mercy when he comes to town. But is this a story we offer to the possessed who walk through our doors each Sunday? Is it a story we even believe anymore? Or has the long, wearying haul of this thing we call Christianity, the stretches of unanswered prayer, the unhealed diseases, the grind of daily grief, loss, doubt, and boredom, worn down our souls and watered down our claim? The challenge is we live in an eschatology that is glorious but incomplete. We live in the uncomfortable tension between the already and the not yet. Yes, Jesus has already defeated death. Yes, the demons already fear his name. Yes, we are right to look to God for the healing and liberation the Gospels attest to so faithfully. But no, the battle is not yet over. No, the abyss hasn't swallowed the demons whole. No, the complete freedom we seek is not yet within our grasp. But that doesn't mean the story is false. It means we have unspeakably more to look forward to. It means our hope is grounded in what Jesus has already done, in the power he has already demonstrated. It means we have every reason to share the good news with confidence, now. If only we could stop there. 
But Luke goes one step further in his gospel account of the Gerasene demoniac, so we must too. The fourth reason to embrace the story as our own is because it illustrates an unpleasant truth about human relationships. When the townspeople see that the demon-possessed man is healed, they don't rejoice. They express no relief, no gratitude, no hospitality, no awe. Instead, they recoil in fear and beg Jesus to go away. What does this mean? Maybe it means we humans prefer to stick with demons we know rather than embrace freedoms we don't. Maybe it means we need some people to be bad so that we can be good. Maybe it means the shackles and chains that bind so many of God's children are the instruments of our own cruel making, the weapons we wield to manage our own fears. Maybe it means we settle for tolerance instead of challenging ourselves to love. Maybe it means the gospel doesn't always bring peace because it also brings upheaval, messing with our moral categories, economic comfort, and social structures in ways we find offensive. Maybe it means resurrection sometimes comes along and kicks our butts so hard we ask Jesus to leave us alone because we'd so much rather stay dead. The story ends with Jesus commissioning the healed man to stay where he is and serve as a missionary to his townspeople, the same townspeople who feared, shunned, trapped, and shackled him for years. I have to admit, this detail makes me laugh, albeit ruefully. Isn't this just like Jesus? To choose the very people we consider the most unholy, the most unredeemable, the most unworthy, and commission them to teach us the gospel? That is God all over. Here, then, is a story about our truest names. Here is a story about resistance and resurrection. Here is a story about the Jesus who finds us naked among the tombs, clothes us with dignity, scatters the demons to save our souls, and turns us into storytellers to heal the world. Here is our story. Amen. For books this week, Dan reviews Parker Palmer's On the Brink of Everything, Grace, Gravity, and Getting Old. I've always appreciated Parker Palmer and have reviewed three of his previous books here at JWJ, A Hidden Wholeness, The Journey Toward an Undivided Life, Let Your Life Speak, Listening for the Voice of Vocation, and The Act of Life, Wisdom for Work, Creativity, and Caring. Palmer is now 80 years old, and we can look back over 50 years of reading, writing, thinking, and wondering about what Socrates called the examined life, a life well-lived that silences the total noise and that filters out the endless distractions of our culture. Palmer has always been about making a real life rather than making a mere living. So when I saw the subtitle of this book about getting old with grace, and since I am already old, I was eager to hear what Palmer had to say from his own age and stage perspective that is on the brink of everything. Alas, I was mildly disappointed. This book is a collection of 24 previous essays, many of which appeared in his online weekly column for Krista Tippett's On Being Studios, along with some of his personal poetry. For example, there's a graduation speech, a letter he wrote to a friend, an essay on four ways that Thomas Merton helped him, and journal excerpts from an annual retreat that he takes in the Wisconsin winter. Nonetheless, Palmer is always worth a read. He reminds me that a meaningful life cannot be reduced to a snappy elevator speech, as he does in all his books, sharing his own faults and failures, along with his experiences of three bouts of clinical depression, is disarming, and a reminder that true wholeness integrates one's brokenness. The contemplative life, says Palmer, cannot be produced to any one technique. Rather, it is any way one has of penetrating illusion and touching reality. Most of all, Palmer encourages us to discover and to affirm our own unique sense of self and calling. Merton bemoaned how easy it is to lapse into self-impersonation, in the world to come, says Rabbi Suzia, they will not ask me why I was not more like Moses. They will ask me why I was not more like my own true self. 
This book reminded me of another one like it by Carl Pilimer, 30 Lessons for Living, Tried and True Advice from the Wisest Americans. Pilimer is a professor of human development at Cornell University who specializes in gerontology and founded the Cornell Institute for Translational Research on Aging. This book presents the results of a study in which Pilimer studied 1,000 elderly people across five years, conducting over 10,000 interviews of various types. The book summarizes what he learned from these wild, wise elders. For movies this week, Dan reviews Extremists. Similar to the movie Endgame that I reviewed a few weeks ago, this Netflix documentary short film considers the complex questions and emotionally fraught decisions that surround end-of-life care. The producer-director is Dan Krauss, whose films have won numerous awards, including an Oscar nomination for The Death of Kevin Carter. Extremists is filmed at the Highland Hospital Intensive Care Unit in Oakland. Krauss does a good job of selecting stories that present different choices. Donna can only breathe with a machine in a special facility. Selena's only child says she's hoping for a miracle and would feel like a murderer if she discontinued life support for her mother. A homeless man has very limited capacity for understanding and decision-making, plus he's without any known family to help him. And while patients and families understandably search for clarity, a physician admits that there are very few things you can be 100% certain about. There are no easy answers to the complicated and deeply personal questions surrounding the end of life, grief, conflicts, trade-offs, etc. But this film would nonetheless help facilitate that difficult discussion. For more on this important subject, see the book by Altul Gawande, Being Mortal, Medicine and What Matters in the End, and the movie version of this book by PBS Frontline, also called Being Mortal. Like the film Endgame, Extremist received a 2017 Academy Award nomination for Best Documentary Short Subject. And lastly, for poetry for this week, Magdalene, The Seven Devils by Marie Howe. The first was that I was very busy. The second, I was different from you. Whatever happened to you could not happen to me, not like that. The third, I worried. The fourth, envy disguised as compassion. The fifth was that I refused to consider the quality of life of the aphid. The aphid disgusted me, but I couldn't stop thinking about it. The mosquito, too, its face, and the ant, its bifurcated body. Okay, the first was that I was so busy. The second, that I might make the wrong choice, because I had decided to take that plane that day, that flight, before noon, so as to arrive early, and I shouldn't have wanted that. The third was that if I walked past a certain place on the street, the house would blow up. The fourth was that I was made of guts and blood with a thin layer of skin lightly thrown over the whole thing. The fifth was that the dead seemed more alive to me than the living. The sixth, if I touched my right arm, I had to touch my left arm. And if I touched the left arm a little harder, then touched the right. Then I had to retouch the left and then touch the right again, so it would be even. The seventh, I knew I was breathing the expelled breath of everything that was alive and I couldn't stand it. I wanted a sieve, a mask, a, I hate this word, a cheesecloth, to breathe through that would trap it, whatever was inside everyone else that entered me when I breathed in. No, that was the first one. The second was that I was so busy. I had no time. How had this happened? How had our lives gotten like this? The third was that I couldn't eat food if I really saw it, distinct, separate from me in a bowl or on a plate. Okay. The first was, was that I could never get to the end of the list. The second was that the laundry was never re finally done. The third was that no one knew me, although they thought they did. 
and that if people thought of me as little as I thought of them, then what was love? The fourth was, I didn't belong to anyone. I wouldn't allow myself to belong to anyone. The fifth was that I knew none of us could ever know what we didn't know. The sixth was that I projected onto others what I myself was feeling. The seventh was the way my mother looked when she was dying, her mouth wrenched into an O so as to take in as much air. The sound she made, the gurgling sound, so loud we had to speak louder to hear each other over it. And that I couldn't stop hearing it years later, grocery shopping, crossing the street. No, not the sound. It was her body's hunger, finally evident, what our mother had hidden all her life. For months I dreamt of knuckle bones and roots, the slabs of sidewalk pushed up like crooked teeth by what grew underneath. The underneath. That was the first devil. It was always with me. And that I didn't think you, if I told you, would understand any of this. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for June 23rd, 2019. I'm Debbie Thomas.